to the Lord, and the other one's far off, or vice versa. There was just one group. They all looked the same, and they were all crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he treated them all the same. He said, Oh, you all head off to the priest. Go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were all cleansed. Every one of them. And then there was one that was different. Because he did something different. He came back and it says in verse 15 that with a loud voice he glorified God. And it turns out he was a Samaritan. Now the Lord didn't, uh, Luke didn't draw our attention to that before. He didn't say there was nine Jews and one Samaritan. He, he drew the picture as if it was one group of lepers. And ignored the fact, until the end, he ignored the fact that the one guy was a Samaritan. Maybe there were more Samaritans, I don't know. But this one came back and he glorified God. And he was probably the one that you would least expect to glorify God because he was a Samaritan. And Jesus draws attention to that. He says, were there not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And so he draws attention to the fact that the man believed in the Lord. He had faith. But he also draws attention, so we have it repeated twice in here, that he returned and gave glory to God. And as I've gotten farther into this section and thought more about it, I began to realize that this story is brilliantly written to communicate so much of what Luke wants to communicate in the rest of the section. So, having that introductory story setting on the up, up, uh, up where we can look at it, the ten men that were ten lepers and all cleansed and everything else like that. Now we start getting into the meat of it. And so verse 20 talks about how the Lord was asked by the Pharisees, when would the kingdom of God come? And this was a topic that they had, that has been addressed in the last couple of sections <clears throat> where he's been talking about the kingdom and talking about who would be in the kingdom and, and more importantly, who would not be in the kingdom. And he talked about Jerusalem, where you would, where the temple of God was at, and all the holy people were at. That Jerusalem actually would be the ones that would have most difficulty getting into the kingdom of heaven, primarily because they thought they were doing okay. And God was looking for the lost. God rejoiced over the lost that repented. And so, it was if you didn't see that you were lost, you weren't going to make it in the kingdom. So we've been talking about the kingdom. So now we're come back again to the topic of the kingdom. When will a kingdom of God come? When will it happen when everybody comes in and they sit down at that great feast before God and they enjoy the blessings of God to the full? And so he says to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, you won't... The, uh, well, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So he says, you, you shouldn't be looking for this tremendous upheaval and things all change and all of a sudden, boom, here the kingdom of God is. That's not what you should be looking for. What you need to recognize is that right now the kingdom of God is here. And it's within you. It's very much like those ten lepers. All ten were lepers, all one group. But there was one of them 
who believed in the Savior, in their midst, the kingdom of God was that one man. So they become an illustration of that. So he tells them that you, you should be looking for this kingdom of God that's not established as a great kingdom where you've got, a, as a traditional kingdom, where you've got a whole new society, you've got a ruler, set of laws, and everybody's living in as citizens to this particular kingdom. Don't look for that. You need to recognize that the kingdom of God is in your very midst. That there is going to be people in among you. They look just like you. They act just like you. But they are part of the kingdom, and you are not. And then he turns to the disciples, and he talks about one of the days of the Son of Man. He says, you, you need to understand there is coming a time of tremendous upheaval and change. When the days of the Son of Man comes, and he says, it won't be like the first time. The first time when the Lord Jesus came, nobody really saw it. There was a small group of shepherds where the angel came and told them, hey, the Messiah has come. But beyond that, nobody was really aware. And as Jesus grew up and as it became evident that he was the Messiah, and say with John the Baptist when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down upon his head and a voice from heaven and people saw, Ooh, this is the Messiah. But it was just a small group. And they had to go up and they had to tell everybody, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah. And people were like, really? But he's just, I mean, what's different about him? So it was very, you, you had to really look closely at it. He says, look, the next time when I come, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be more like when, when you have a dark night and there's a thunderstorm and a lightning flashes on one side miles away. Oof, it lights up the whole place. You can't miss it. This is what the second coming is. This is kind of what the Pharisees were thinking about. They wanted to know, when is that kind of kingdom going to come? When the Son of Man comes a second time and establishes his kingdom on earth. And Jesus says, you, you don't look for that. You better focus on right now, or else you're not going to get into that. And he talks about how when the Son of Man comes, he says, look, everybody's going to be living life like normal. You're not going to be anticipating this tremendous upheaval of everything gets changed when the Son of Man comes. And he says... At that time, it's going to be like the days of Noah or the days of Lot, when everybody's living happily and all of a sudden, boom, judgment comes. Fire, brimstone, or flood, or something to that effect. He says, there's going to be judgment that comes. Can you watch what happens? He says in verse 34 of chapter 17, he says, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. They'll be doing the same thing in the same place. And they'll obviously be friends because ain't no guy shares a bed with another guy unless they're buddies. Uh, good buddies at that, too. I mean, you don't want to... That'd be ridiculous. <clears throat> so, and then there will be like two women grinding together. They're actually working together. And in both cases, there will be one that will be taken in judgment, and the other one will escape judgment. Two men will be in the field. So there will be people in the midst that will look just like them and all of a sudden it become evident who is part of the kingdom of God and who is not because the ones that are not are going to be taken away the judgment. <coughs> judgment will take the ones that are not. That's what will happen. when I can, so, so you can understand then why he's telling the Pharisees, look, you don't want to be looking for that kingdom to come. You want to make sure that you're part of the kingdom now because if you're not part of the kingdom now, when that kingdom comes in the future, you'll be taken out in judgment. So, who's them that are in the kingdom? And what, what people, how do you know 
How do you know who's in the kingdom and who's not? And so that brings us to chapter 18. I can't remember if we talked about this much or not. But he tells a parable to them. He says, he tells a parable that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. He says, there wasn't a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. And that's a bad deal. You got a judge who, well, that's kind of okay. I mean, he's impartial. He doesn't, well, the problem is, is that he doesn't really care about right or wrong. He judges whatever he feels like. He doesn't care. He doesn't fear God. So he doesn't, he's not concerned about judging what's right. He just, he's got power and authority and he knows how to use it. Now, there wasn't a widow that's, uh, there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. So she evidently had something happen where somebody took some of her stuff, took her house away from her, took her cell phone, took her who knows what. And she wants it back. She wants justice. They took it away from her unfairly. And he would not get justice for a while. He didn't care. He didn't fear God. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God or regard man, but because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. She just kept on coming. The first day she asked the judge to get justice for her, and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll get right to that. Don't you worry about the second day she comes to him. So how's it going, Mr. Judge? I'm uh, getting justice here pretty quick. I haven't actually started on it, he says, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. The third day she comes again, and he's like, what the world is going on? She asks, is it? And he's like, look, I'll get to it when I'm ready. Quit pestering me. And the fourth day she comes again. He says, hey, what? Didn't I tell you to just go ahead and wait? I'll call you. Don't you call me. And the fifth day she comes again. The sixth day, the seventh day, eighth day, ninth day. She just keeps on coming. Day after day after day after day. Can I get some justice, please? And he's fed up. And he says, fine. I'll get it for you. Just quit pestering me. And he gets it for her. Of course, the question is, if he wasn't willing to get her justice, why did she keep coming? Why didn't she go find somebody else to get justice for her? But that's the way it is. The judge determines who gets justice. And she knew that he was her only resource. She had to go to him because she couldn't find justice anywhere else. He was the one who had the authority and power. There wasn't anybody else. So she had to go to him. That's the characteristic of people that are in the kingdom of God. God is their only resource. You can't find justice anywhere else. You have to turn to him, even if he stays quiet and doesn't answer your prayer for years upon years. Where else are you going to go? You've got to go to him. He's the only one that you're going to find justice. And the people who are part of the kingdom, they believe that. They believe that God's their only resource. And Jesus asked the question, look, there is coming a time when God will avenge his elect. It will happen. But when the Son of Man comes, when he comes in that day to establish the kingdom, will he find people still looking to God for justice? Or won't he? So that's characteristic number one. They are looking to God for justice because they don't have anywhere else to go. Well, they could go other place. They could find some man that would, you know, hire some kind of, uh, what do you call, serial killer and have him kill uh, their troublemaker and then go take their stuff back and get justice for themselves. They could do that. Or maybe they could appeal to this resource over here. But they say, you know what, I can't, why appeal to man that doesn't do any good? I need true justice from God. And they turn to God. 
Then he tells another parable. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So we've got two, these are, now we're not talking two of the same men, we're talking two very different men. We're talking a Pharisee who was recognized, widely recognized as a very good man. And we're talking about a tax collector who was widely recognized as a scumbag. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. You see how good he is. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not even an adulterer. Or not even like this tax collector here on the other side of the courtyard. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Now in contrast now in verse 13, we got the tax collector. He's standing far off. Pharisee, he's probably standing front and center. Tax collector, he's standing back in the corner where, where there's some shadows to hide in. And he will not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So he's a self-acknowledged failure. He says, look, I, I have blown it and I, I need mercy. And Jesus says, look, look, I tell you, this man, this Pharisee, not the Pharisee, this tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other, where everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The people in the kingdom of God. So you know, the tax collector, he's making an appeal to God too. Well, the widow was looking for justice. She wanted vengeance on the people that had taken advantage of her. The tax collector was the one who had taken advantage of the widow. He's not looking to God for justice because he recognizes that he's the one who would be, if the Son of Man were to come that day, he would be the one that would be taken off in judgment. He would not be left to enter the kingdom. And he's appealing to God somehow. Show me some mercy. And Jesus says, look, he got it. He got mercy. God gave it to him. He went home justified. In other words, God said, you are exactly what I'm looking for. I will take you and protect you, keep you for myself. And the Pharisee went home with just what he came. He got nothing else. So the people that are part of the kingdom are the ones who humble themselves, not the ones who pretend like, you know, they like a rich man, maybe trying to fit in with the poor folk, and so he would... Maybe untuck his shirt or something. You know, I try to pretend. No, no, it's a humility where it says, look, God, where you stand before God and you realize, like, what God said about me is absolutely right. I am corrupt. I, yeah, uh, if judgment were to come today, I have no excuse. I would be swept away in judgment. God is absolutely correct. That's who I am. That kind of humility, those kind of people then are part of the kingdom. They may look like everybody else. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes between somebody who's pretending to be humble and somebody who actually realizes where they stand before God. Hard to tell. They all look the same. It's hard to tell the difference between somebody who is waiting on God to provide their justice that they're looking for and people and people who only you know it's, it's hard to tell god can tell but it's hard for us to tell it, it looks it's 
It's a different attitude, a different heart. Then Luke brings our attention to uh, a little event that took place in verse 15. He says, Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when their disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So he hasn't left the topic of the kingdom of God. He's still talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about who is part of the kingdom of God. Now what was happening was Jesus, he was teaching and talking to people. They were coming to him. The disciples were all around him. They wanted to learn. And then these people, moms or somebody, brought their little kids. I mean, toddlers. They wanted Jesus to, they knew he was a good man. They knew he was a, a man from God. They wanted him to you know, put his hands on them or whatever and to, to speak some blessing to them. They thought that would be neat. And the disciples were like, hey, don't you realize he's, he's talking to people, to men. Well, I mean, you come after we're done with this teaching session here. Quit interrupting him. He's got a train of thought going. And you just, you will stand off in the corner there and wait until we get done with this, this lesson from the Bible. And Jesus saw it. He said, no, you don't understand. Bring them, bring them over here. This is the kind of people that make up the kingdom of God, a little child. What's a characteristic of a little child? A little toddler, a little child, they're defenseless. You, you can take candy away from a child like nothing. And sometimes you don't even have to yank it away from them. You can actually talk to them and and convince them to give up their candy, manipulate them or whatever. I mean, they, they got no defenses. They, if, if they're going to be protected from evil, they're the kind of people who say, I, I need God because I don't have what it takes to stand up and protect myself or to find vengeance for myself. I don't have the might, the power, the resources. They're like that widow her only resource was God. The other thing about little children is they don't have anything to offer. If, if they want to stay in a hotel room, they don't have the money to pay for it. If they want to get something, I mean, they, they just don't have resources to get anything. And so if they're going to receive some kind of favor, some kind of grace, some kind, something that they need, they are dependent upon the kindness of the people who do have things. They don't have resources. They're kind of like that tax collector. He had nothing to offer to buy the mercy of God. That's why he stood in the corner. He said, I... Uh, like a little child, all he could do was ask. He couldn't even promise to change his life or to do better. He could only ask. These are the kind of people that God brings into the kingdom of God. They are there. They look like everybody else. But 
They're like little children to God, his children. Now, in contrast to these little children, we're, we're introduced to a, a ruler in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this guy, he's got resources, influence, friends. He's a ruler. And he wants eternal life. This was this eternal life business. This is something new. The prophets didn't talk about it in days past, so far as I'm aware of. Uh, Jesus talked about it. And John the Baptist introduced people to the concept, I think, a little bit, maybe. But anyhow, he introduced him to Jesus. And Jesus talked about receiving eternal life. And this guy is like, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. And I think eternal life would be good to have. What do I have to do to get said eternal life? So when Jesus said to him, well, why do you call me good? No one is good, uh, there, no one is good but one, that is God. Right away he brings this man's attention, he's like, I want you to realize, you need to recognize what resources you do have. Or more like, what resources do you have? <laughs> you need to see it. No one is good by God. Okay, but let's just take a look. Let's measure you up. Let's see how good you are. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. This is what that Pharisee was looking at in a previous parable. He said, look, I'm not like other people. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not unjust. I know I, I tell the truth and all those other things. How do you measure up? And the rich man said, he said, like the Pharisee, all these things I have kept from my youth. I've, I've done all that. So does that mean then that I am qualified that I will inherit eternal life? And so when Jesus heard these things, funny he says that, heard these things. This was one little statement. I, I have done all of that. But Jesus heard more than one little statement. He heard a man who who thought he had resources. He thought he had an abundance of good works by which he could present to God as his qualifications to receive eternal life. He was in a pretty good situation and it broke the Lord's heart to see that man in that place. When Jesus heard these things, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And when that rich man heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. He had all kinds of resources. But he was, how do you say this? I mean, he was in the position where he had a lot of wealth, he had the option of eternal life. Which one's worth more? Is the money worth more? Or is the eternal life worth more? He had, I have so much that I can offer God to obtain eternal life. The problem was that he's saying, I have so much 
And Jesus pointed out, you think you have so much and you value it so much. Look, if, if you had to trade your wealth for eternal life, would you do it? Oh, I don't, that wealth is pretty valuable. I don't know if I can give that up. For eternal life? So his wealth is actually not his advantage. His wealth is actually putting him into poverty because it's preventing him from obtaining eternal life. This man is pathetically poor. If you're talking about terms of real value, And he didn't see it. He didn't see how poor he was, that, that he really had nothing to offer God. He was so in love with his money, he wasn't even willing to take what God was offering him. <clears throat> so when Jesus saw that, he became very... Or <laughs> I read that wrong. Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful. No, what it says is, when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard, how difficult it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If you think you have a lot, but the people in the kingdom are those who have nothing, I have. How do you enter the kingdom? If you have a lot, how do you how do you get to the point where you realize I have nothing? If you have a lot, how do you get to the point to where you say, I need God, I have no other resource? Because that's the characteristics of the people in the kingdom of God, where God is their only resource. And they have nothing to offer for God's mercy. But if you think you have a lot to offer or a lot to support yourself, how do you enter the kingdom? Because it's, it puts you in a position where you, you are the exact opposite of a person that is part of the kingdom. Does that make sense? Is that having riches places you in a, in a position where you're in the opposite place where you need to be where people are who are actually in the kingdom. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. It's hard for a rich man to get to the place of dependency upon God and, and to the place where they have no, nothing to offer but God, God can bring a rich man to that point. And as you saw the Lord Jesus did so effectively to that rich man, that rich Uberlu, as he told, showed him that, look, you think you have a lot to offer God, but the reality is you love your money so much you won't even take eternal life if you had to trade the one for the other. You would give up eternal life. You see your poverty. And all that rich man had to realize was, my wealth is meaningless. In fact, it's, it's worse than meaningless. It actually is, it's dragging me down. And my goodness, only God is good. And see, God is in the, he's in the, in the, uh, the work of showing men their poverty 
and their their inability to stand on their own two feet, their their need for God. He's showing them that. Because when they reach that position, then they are qualified to enter the kingdom of God. Now Peter says, see, we've left all and followed you. I think I think he missed the point. <laughs> but notice how the Lord responds to him. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. <clears throat> what the Lord is telling him is, look, it's not God's, it may seem like it, but it's not God's intent to impoverish you. He doesn't want a bunch of poor serfs in his kingdom who don't have anything and they, <clears throat> they can only get what they need from God and, and they're just beggars. <clears throat> That's not God's intent. He doesn't, you got to understand what I'm saying. God is not trying to impoverish people and bring in these really poor, wretched beggars and that's what's going to make up his kingdom. I don't know. <clears throat> He's trying to bring you to the point where you depend on him. And when you depend on him, <clears throat> he, will, he will give you more than what you've had before. Not only in this life, but in the life to come, God will make you rich men with true wealth, with blessing from God. Don't get a mistaken impression of what God intends to do. You do need to <clears throat> give up your wealth. You have to give up the idea that your wealth will support you or your wealth will buy or your goodness will buy eternal life from God. It, it won't. You need, to, you need to give that up. And you need to look to God alone to save you. And when you do that, he will save you probably. <clears throat> Now we take a little bit of a turn here. He took the twelve aside and said to them in verse 31, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning, concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. <clears throat> he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now, I think what, what we're supposed to notice here is the, is the disciples' response to this. <clears throat> they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them. They did not know the things which were spoken. This is a threefold statement. He's trying to draw your attention to something. They understood none of these things. That's statement one. Repeated with different words, he says, this saying was hidden from them. And now repeated for a third time, again with different words, they did not know the things which were spoken. They were absolutely clueless to what he was talking about. And I think Luke is drawing our attention to that because this thing that the Lord was talking about to us now, now on the other side of salvation, is so clear to us. It's so obvious, so so central to our faith. It is the bedrock on which we stand. It's the first thing we begin to understand when we're saved. It's, a, it's, it's everything that we build our lives on, that he was 
went to Jerusalem and everything that the prophet said was fulfilled and all that they did to him, their cruelty and, and nailing him to the cross. And, but he rose, from the, he rose from the dead and that's, that's everything to us. But you need to understand, they were absolutely clueless. No idea. Because that's the way it is. I mean, we don't understand God's ways. We don't appreciate or fully grasp what he's doing. It seems so backwards to our thinking. Why why would God, if God intends to bless us so much, why does he tell us to get rid of all of our wealth first? I mean, why do we got to be fully dependent on him? Well, that doesn't even make any sense. Why don't I just bring my wealth in and then he can just add to it? Why do we have to be all impoverished and we're looking to God as our only resource and calling out for his mercy and and then he brings it, it just doesn't make any sense. And granted, we don't know what God is doing. So now we've got a couple stories about two men who couldn't see and they wanted to see. It happened as he was, in verse 35, it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. This guy could not see. He was blind. <clears throat> he has no resources, incidentally. He's sitting by the side of the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant, so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he's like, this is a good deal. This is an opportunity that should not be passed up. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You had the ten lepers, and they're all the same, and they're all standing there, and they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. You have the tax collector coming before God, and he says, Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We understand what the tax collector was saying. He was a sinner, and the judgment was coming, and he was crying out for some mercy to, be, to, to escape the judgment. Well, what mercy is this, <clears throat> this blind man looking for? Is he a sinner? So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't say anything about sins. He says, Lord, I just want to see. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. So similar to those ten lepers. Have mercy on us. He wanted to receive his sight. They wanted to be made well. He received his sight. To the leper, he said, your faith has made you well. To this blind man, he says, your faith has made you well. 
when he received his sight, he glorified God as the leper did, who glorified God. And the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Where our attention is drawn to this final point here, that they glorified God. This is important. The glorification of God. God has been so good to me. And people saw it. They gave praise to God. Well, now we've got another man in chapter 19. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now we've got a second rich man. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, because he was of short stature. So the blind man couldn't see because he was blind. Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus because he was short and everybody else was around him and he couldn't see over their heads and he wanted to see Jesus. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was going to pass that way. Which is exceedingly undignified for a rich man to do. You just don't see rich men running around climbing up into trees to watch the parade. They don't do that. They sit up in the bleachers, up in the in the box, the, 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 where the, the respected, the VIPs go. That's where the rich people go. They don't climb up in trees. That's extremely undignified. Zacchaeus didn't care. He wanted to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he saw him and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. You're going to get to see me. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. He was so excited. When they saw it, they all complained and said, he's speaking of Jesus. He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by a false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This man here personifies exactly what I'm looking for, for those who will come into the kingdom. He's a rich man, yes. But does he think his riches count for anything? Are they a resource for him to depend on? He cast his riches aside when he climbed up that tree. He's like, I don't care if I'm a rich man or not. I want to see Jesus. And he's willing to trade his riches, give them to the poor. I don't care. Get that poor. I mean, that riches mean nothing. That's I, I look to God. But you see what the key is for these people, for both the blind man and for Zacchaeus. The way to God was through Jesus. That's where they found mercy, and that's how they found the the grace from God was through Jesus. And it glorifies God. Salvation has come to this house. He is you thought he was a sinner, but he is one of those who have faith. He he looks like all the other sinners. You didn't you couldn't you didn't know. 
that he was humble in heart and that he was looking to God. You didn't know. He recognized that he had nothing. He couldn't even see what God was doing or understand and he couldn't even see Jesus. That's what he wanted and he cried out like a blind man crying out for mercy. He reached out to see Jesus. And mercy came to this tax collector like mercy came to the other tax collector. And it was done for the glory of God. That's who makes up the kingdom. Them kind of people. And then Luke throws another story, which we won't really go through in depth, but I'll give you a little sneak peek. This is the last story before the the section comes to a close. And it's about the master, the nobleman, he's going to go receive a kingdom. And at the end he comes back with his kingdom and he brings judgment with him. But then there's a big chunk in the middle where each of these men, his servants, are given money and they're told to go to, to stay busy while he's gone. And they, and they do stay busy. Some of them do, some of them don't. One of them doesn't. But it's, it's in a, they're in a setting where the citizens hate that guy and they don't want him to rule over them. So it's a, it's a contrary, and you're supposed to go out and stay busy in a place, you know, you're supposed to, where well, the idea was you're supposed to do business in a place where people hated their master. That's challenging. How are you going to do business in a place where people hate your master? They're not going to trust you. They're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're not going to want to work with you. They're going to want to see you fail. And that's the situation that these men found themselves in. But he told them, stay busy. Do business. I don't want you just hiding off in a corner and waiting until I come back with the kingdom. I want you to go out and be busy. Now we know from the previous chapters that money is not God's focus or interest. He's not trying to see his people get rich. He has shown his people mercy. And it has caused them to glorify God. And he has, so he has given them resources. They're to take those resources and invest them in such a way so that not only do they glorify God, but other people glorify God. And you know the ratio that they're supposed to work with? I mean, what, what Jesus told in the previous section was he said, look, you take your money and you distribute it to people so that they <clears throat> they love you because you've done them great benefit. Here he says, you take what I've given you and you distribute it freely, like God freely distributes all of his things so that they glorify God. Because Jesus, when he's presented with ten people, knowing their hearts, he doesn't just give to the one that's going to glorify God. He gave to all ten. But only one glorified God. Seems like a poor investment, but that's the way it's done. When you're in a world where there's a lot of enemies, you take what God has given you, and you stay busy with it, give it out as freely as you can, so that people glorify God and they will glorify God that one man glorified him that day the other nine will glorify him the day of judgment 
to take what God's given you and put it in your back pocket because you're a little bit afraid of whether or not you're going to actually give it to the right person or whether they're going to actually glorify God or this, that, or the other thing is a big mistake. So that's next time. The people who are in the kingdom of God, they have found that God is good. They have glorified God. And the Lord says, now I want you to stay busy until I return with my kingdom and I want you to do things, do good works in such a way that other people will come to glorify God as well. And if you do that, you will be greatly rewarded. Father, we come before you and just thank you for your mercies towards us. And we pray that you would continue to work that way in our hearts that we might know our poverty and our weakness, that we are but little children and that we need we need you. And that you are a good God who will uh, who will take care of us, will bring us to the end in safety, and that you will and do show mercy upon us and justify us to know these things and to rest in them, Father. We pray that you would work in us toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen.